Hi, and welcome back to Brentwood Stories. Today's episode, Brentwood in the Pines, is hard to describe in just one or two sentences. In part, it is the story of Dr. Peck, a fascinating but lesser-known figure prominent in Brentwood's prehistory. It is also in part the story of the humble pine tree and the lands associated with it. These lands, known as the Pine Barrens, have been referred to dismissively in the past as the Wastes or the Sand Barrens. Later on, however, these same grand pine forests would be celebrated for their perceived benefits to health and air quality. I feel that this story is a fascinating allegory into how people choose to give value to a certain object or place, and how that perceived value can shift over time. The worth we associate with the pine tree as a local symbol is a result of our shared history and the role this majestic tree has played in our own town's coming of age. I'll let Peter take it from here. So sit back and enjoy episode two of Brentwood Stories. <laughs> well, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming again to our Brentwood Stories program. Today we are going to be talking a little bit about a very interesting epoch in Brentwood history, and that's Brentwood in the Pines. And there's a lot of interesting material on this period, so I've written down some of my notes, and one of the first things that I noticed that was very interesting about how notable Brentwood's pine trees are is that there's actually a book called Famous and Historic Trees. Have you ever seen that one in the library, Famous and Historic Trees? Well, in 1976, Brentwood's Cathedral Pines were actually an entry in that book. And what it said is that in the town of Brentwood on Long Island is a row of white pines, Pinus strobus, known as the Cathedral Pines. They mark the site of a utopian community named Modern Times, founded in 1853 by a group of intellectuals. Modern Times was dissolved as a communal enterprise in 1862, and two years later, the town was given the name Brentwood in the Pines, later simply Brentwood, after a town in Essex, England, whence some of the residents had immigrated. Although the original colony passed away, Brentwood has endured. It is in Suffolk County, in the town of Islip, and the Cathedral Pines are on both sides of Washington Avenue, north of Cedar Avenue. And then in 1990, the efforts of local residents saw these particular Cathedral Pines actually marked in the Society for the Protection of Long Island Antiquities, their inventory of Long Island landmarks. And I was actually looking into the Cathedral Pines a little bit as far as New York State landmarks goes, and it turns out that they are part of the Brentwood Historic District, which people had attempted to be made a state landmark a few times. So they could be in the future potentially part of Brentwood itself becoming a landmark. Of course, Brentwood is in the central Long Island in the very midst of New York's Pine Barrens. And one of the things I found interesting is the question of why modern times would have been renamed Brentwood in the Pines and for many years afterwards been called by this name. It seems straightforward because it's a village where there's all these pine trees. But there were questions that I thought were interesting um, behind the details of the naming of the place. 
And there are also many interesting stories and details behind the trees themselves. Uh, one example of a question I had is how these cathedral pines, which were planted in the early 20th century to celebrate the town being named Brentwood in the Pines, how could they have been planted after the town was already called that? So if, the, if it was called that after those trees, why were they planted after it was already named Brentwood in the Pines? Shouldn't they have already been there? And were these just additional trees added to those already in the Pine Barrens? So that was one of the questions I thought was interesting, but there are a lot of other interesting uh, secrets that remain to be discovered in the Brentwood Pines. And the first person who may be familiar to you, who was Dr. Peck. Has anybody uh, heard of Dr. Peck in relation to Brentwood history? Hmm. So our story begins with Edgar Fenn Peck, and yet at the same time, he's sort of a forgotten person sometimes in Brentwood and Long Island history. I think that's because the memory of Dr. Peck isn't really a part of modern times itself because he was before Brentwood and he's not as much a part of more contemporary sites and landmarks. And unlike some of the other people who are part of Brentwood history, he didn't write uh, popular books of his own. Instead, his ideas appeared in agricultural journals and in the works of other Long Island historians. He's the figure of Brentwood's prehistory and set the stage for what has been written after and not always he's not always been mentioned himself. So he was born in upstate New York and when young attended the Washington Academy and some of the things he wrote in the uh, Henry Stiles' 1884 Long Island History. There's a chapter on Dr. Peck, which was an autobiographical article that he wrote that had some very interesting excerpts. He said, I had a very strong desire from my childhood for uh, knowledge and learning, a thirsting after knowledge, and I spent all my time when not at work with my books and studies and wondered if I would ever become a learned man and be good and useful. And part of that curiosity included the natural world. Dr. Peck said, I learned to bud and graft when 14 years old, and I learned by observation and analogy when a boy, by seeing or finding acorns and hickory nuts under the trees, that in the spring they sprouted, and when I saw the young plants come up under the sugar maple and the apple seeds sprouted under the apple trees, it occurred to me if those nuts and tree seeds were planted, they would grow. I tried it, and they did grow. I had never heard or read anything about planting tree seed. The only thing I had ever read was that tall oaks from little acorns grow. There was nothing said about planting them. <laughs> I think we're supposed to be impressed by this. <laughs> um, he was obviously he was a very serious young man, and he was determined to help improve the world. At 19, he dedicated himself to abstinence from alcohol, and he uh, would later declare that that was two years before the abstinent, the temperance movement spread across the United States. So he was an early adopter. 
Dr. Peck wrote, My pious and excellent mother used to think that boys ought not to drink cider after it had fermented, and in compliance with her wish, I abandoned it. The next year, he began studying medicine and quickly became an expert in the treatment of... This is a good trivia question. It'll seem obvious after you guess, though. Can you guess what disease he became an expert in treating? Delirium tremens. And then after that, he was assigned to treat the terrible outbreak of cholera in New York City. Dr. Peck married and had two children, Emma Louise and Julia Anna, but the younger one actually died of cholera, and that's why the family decided to move to Long Island. And actually, both Peck's wife and older daughter were also um, very ill, and the island was recommended for a good vacation and recuperative area. Dr. Peck purchased land in Smithtown, and in Dyson's book, it identifies it as the former parsonage of Reverend Ithinar Pillsbury. Over the course of his journey from New York City to Smithtown by horse and buggy over roads that were cut into the wilderness, Peck was able to observe for the first time a strange and wild scenery, and even said, The strangeness and wild aspect of the scenery is beautiful and impressive. The mind can scarcely comprehend the fact that such utter stillness and seclusion and such an exhibition of nature in more than primeval rudeness should occur within three hours' ride of the great metropolis. Almost as far as the vision reaches, the eye rests only upon a sea of waving bushes. And that description of the Pine Barrens is kind of similar to one that Josiah Warren, the founder of Modern Times, would make about the Pine Barrens when he wrote about the land he had purchased in his journal and described a field of nothing but scrub oaks as far as the eye could see and having to pull them up in order to make roads and different plots of land for people to purchase. Some of the names of the Pine Barrens in Dr. Peck's day can give you an idea of what people thought of the eastern part and central part of Long Island. What we call the Pine Barrens were in Dr. Peck's day known as the Waste, the Sand Barrens, and the Brush Barrens. Dr. Peck observed that the dark soil of the Tempstead Plain gradually transformed into a yellow soil tinged with red, and that the foliage, as he traveled, went from tall, tall grasses to the pines and scrub oak. The Long Island Railroad was in the beginning of its development, and so most of central Long Island was undeveloped, whether for settlement or farming. And Peck, after he had bought his place in Smithtown, remembered that every man I saw or met at Smithtown replied that the land was worthless, that nothing would grow on it. But he wasn't convinced, just by the opinions of a few, and he began to investigate the barons. And once more, as he had done as a child, Peck applied himself to the written word, and he read histories and agricultural journals to try to determine a true natural history of the place. Well, one of the things that he discovered were some of the species that actually grew in the Pine Barrens. There's, there was the um, yellow pitch pine, 
the scrub oak, and some interesting types of birds. The one that I always thought was um, an interesting one is the prairie hen, which is in the lower right. Have you ever heard of that bird, the prairie hen? Yeah, it was actually, um, there's a similar bird that is very rare, but still exists in the um, western prairies. But this bird, a variety of it, lived in Massachusetts, and there's also a species that lived on Long Island, and one of its main environments was the Hempstead Plain, and it also lived in the Pine Barrens, but eventually the prairie hen became extinct. Now, one of the uh, cool things, I don't know if this is cool or morbid, but one of the only, the only picture of a prairie hen, not, the, not this um, pen and ink illustration, the only color illustration that was a painting was actually of one from Long Island. But Dr. Peck found that the historians of Long Island, they agreed with these people who all said nothing would grow in the Pine Barrens. Benjamin Franklin Thompson and Nathaniel Prime, they agreed with that general opinion. But then, um, oh, so this is the excerpt from Thompson that Peck read. The soil near the sound and particularly upon the necks is the best in the town. The high grounds are the most valuable and productive. The pine plains in the middle of the island are a mass of sand with occasional spots having a thin covering of loam. And he said, at the depth of 18 feet, limbs of trees and the outer bark of the pitch pine have been discovered. And so both Thompson and Prime had agreed that um, the plains couldn't be cultivated. But Peck still continued to investigate. And so basically, obviously, people have settled in here and named this area Brentwood and the Pines. But if the Pine Barrens hadn't been, hadn't had some value, then nobody ever would have. And one of the interesting things about them that we find is that there's a lot of uncertainty. Like I said, the authors seem to think nothing would ever grow. And another thing is that there was uncertainty of the nature of the Pine Barrens themselves. And one of the reasons for this is that they were always being harvested for wood, that they would be cleared and wood would be used for firewood or used for charcoal or sent into New York City for various uses. And there were also a lot of fires and the fires would rage for many miles and completely burn down great areas of the barrens. And so... This uncertainty, this made it uncertain if they had always been like this, the Pine Barrens, or human um, influence had made them this way, like cutting down the trees, cutting down the undergrowth. And there was a similar idea about the Hempstead Plain, because the historians and people at this time wondered, was this plain perhaps man-made? And one hypothesis was that the Indians had grown the Hempstead Plain and preserved that environment as a way to give um, deer a place to graze. So one of the things about the Pine Barrens at this time, another problem, I guess, was the fire. And besides 
with other causes of fire, there was the railroad itself, and sometimes a spark would be thrown off one of these engines. And um, there are accounts of people describing heading into Suffolk County and seeing these great uh, fires raging. So what Peckett said was that after the opening of the railroad, these woodlands were made common plunder for cordwood dealers and charcoal burners, and the woods and timber destroyed in the most wanton manner. And then in one of the descriptions about... Um, how the fire could reset. The woods were set on fire and burned with great fury every spring and fall. One of those fires in 1848 burned for two weeks, day and night, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud of smoke by day. It burned for over 75 square miles, broke out in the woods about a mile south of the railroad and ran 15 miles east and five miles wide. Great Difficulty was experienced in keeping the villages from being burnt up. Then after the um, opening of the railroad, they continued to harvest the wood for charcoal and other uses. And it was said that the barons could produce fire or charcoal wood every 15 or 20 years. But the ironic thing about that is that Dr. Peck saw that as evidence for the power of the soil to grow plants. So Dr. Peck, from 1841 to 1843, continued to examine the lands that he had purchased. He claimed to have examined more than four, 50 square miles of territory, all the way from Farmingdale to Ronkonkoma, and found that those vast tracts did not differ in soil and geology at all from the cultivated land on their borders. And one of the people he worked with during this time was George Fisk, who was president of the Long Island Railroad. And one of the reasons that um, Mr. Fisk would want it to be discovered that these lands could be cultivated or some way that they could be cultivated was, of course, that it would give people more of a reason to use the Long Island Railroad and travel in that direction. So Dr. Peck himself raised wheat and corn on the despised lands with complete success. So now that he was convinced that the lands could be farmed, Peck began working to convince the general public of the value of the lands as well as scientific people. And what he wanted was to purchase and sell great quantities of the land to get it into the hands of people who would cultivate it. And one of the interesting articles that went a long way into churning people's opinions was published in the 1859 Transactions of the New York State Agricultural Society, and that was the author William C. Watson. And in his article, he gave a lot of credit to Dr. Peck for being the one to really discover that these lands could be farmed. And so he ended up debunking some of the reasons that people believed the lands couldn't be farmed. People had said that they were very dry, that the soil was too acidic, and it is true that the um, type of pine tree that was growing there can grow in very acidic soils. The article disproved that it was too much for uh, other types of plants. Frost was another reason that people believed plants might, might not survive, and then the general expense of clearing these lands. Because even if people purchased lands in the Pine Barrens, 
there were all of the scrub oaks and the pine trees themselves that had to be cleared in areas that you would want to farm. So clearing methods were suggested in the article, and they were suggested by two men, Mr. Bridges, who had ideas about clearing, and Dr. Peck. And so the different methods that were suggested, Mr. Bridges had grubbing, which would be removing every inch of cover that could be found in the area, stumping, cutting down the um, trees to just six or eight inches above the ground, and then plowing over the whole area. And then, and then Dr. Peck, in contrast, suggested possibly using a scythe to cut everything, cutting and burning the entire underbrush, and then... Um, the, the positive aspects of farming were the climate and closeness to the city. And there was an exemption of the land from stones and large stumps, the ease with which it can be tilled, the mildness of the climate, and the additional time the circumstance affords the labor are all highly important inducements for the cultivation of these lands. And that was the uh, quote by Watson. One of the interesting things that um, Peck did with all the lands that he purchased, was that um, he also was involved in the development of Lakeland. And the original um, depot, this is the um, post office and train depot that Dr. Peck established, was a precursor to Lake Ronkonkoma, which he wanted to develop as well. So he purchased a tremendous amount of land, and um, he purchased from, what was his name? Wicks. <laughs> he purchased from a uh, Baron Wicks who owned a lot of land in Brentwood as well. And he just purchased uh, tremendous amounts of uh, the Pine Barrens territory and sold it at what he said were very cheap prices to um, people that he thought would be able to develop them. He was generally disappointed in the level of development that most people gave to the land, but he was still the person that really induced people to move to Brentwood and places like Lakeland. And the reason that Brentwood, for instance, was able to be sold at a very affordable level was because Dr. Peck was trying to induce settlements. I forgot to read this uh, quote that I liked about another criticism of the criticisms of the Pine Barrens, which was that no term, this was like Watson again, no term applied to land was ever more erroneously used than designation of the plains of Long Island as sand barrens. Neither term is true or appropriate, and there prevails the same loam from one to three feet deep, then small gravel intermingled, which rests upon the foundation of coarse and rounded gravel. So he was saying it was the same soil as the better farmland in Long Island. And one example he gave for the quality of the soil, which everyone thought was very sandy, is that clay could everywhere be collected on the plains, and it was the predominant ingredient. He said, I collected specimens in various spots and for convenience molded them into balls. When these had become hard, I could not separate the particles with my fingers, but was obliged to use a hammer for the purpose. The balls had acquired the consistency of a brick. 
I was shown by Dr. Peck houses at North Islip, which had been constructed of sun-dried brick made from the soil in the immediate vicinity. The holes from which the hearth had been taken from were pointed out to me. The excavations were on the loam or surface soil. So the, pur the purchase that he made from um, Wicks was the basis for establishing Brentwood, and he said that I purchased in 1848 of FMA Wicks, Francis Moses Ashbury Wicks, 400 acres at $2.75 an acre without the wood, which he retained, and this now is the land on which the village of Brentwood stands. As I did not intend to keep the land or any part of it, I did not take the deed for it, as I purchased it for the express purpose of getting it into the hands of those who would improve it. And of course, one of the people that Dr. Peck communicated with was Mr. Fleet, the publisher, and that was how he eventually got in contact with other men, including Josiah Warren, and how this particular part of the land was sold to the people who would establish Brentwood, the uh, intellectuals who were mentioned earlier. But there were also agricultural-type people who, Mr. who uh, Dr. Peck settled in the area of Brentwood. And one of the most famous examples was Mr. Richardson, who he refers to as the nurseryman at Brentwood. He came from Massachusetts under my advertisements in the Boston Cultivator. And he came to my house in Brooklyn, and I went with him to examine the lands. He did not buy any lands of me, but he did end up purchasing the lands. And Richardson's farms became very well known and there was the famous anecdote about how um, the apples and strawberries could grow so large in the Brentwood soil. So that was the first reason that the fact that it was Brentwood and the pines was so important because the pine trees, from being a bad thing, from being a waste that people wouldn't want to settle in, became seen as a place where people believed that the soil was very strong and that you didn't need a lot of fertilizer and that um, farming could be very successful. But there are also a couple of other reasons that Brentwood and the Pines would become an actual selling point. And one of the first causes was the boom in seeing Long Island as a resort area. And these are some of the examples. There was the health resort that was started by Dr. Ross and um, St. Joseph's in the Pines. And of course, the precursor to St. Joseph's in the Pines, the development known as Pine Park. Um, and the interesting thing about Dr. Ross is that he came to Brentwood to, to um, serve as a physician and eventually came to see the environment itself as the most effective sort of physician, the most effective doctor. And at this time, one other place, there were resorts and health organizations in Pennsylvania, and the pines there were seen as very effective health tools. And so Dr. Ross arrived in Brentwood. Um, oh, yeah. So like Peck... There's a lot of parallels between Ross and Peck, and one of the interesting things is that Peck 
set up these experimental farms. One of them was a peach farm, and some later writers would talk about the successful peaches he had grown. But Peck's experimental farm was in the exact place where Ross would later move at Brentwood, and where Peck had been trying to prove to everybody that the Pine Barrens were a good place to farm. Ross would try to tell them that the Pine Barrens are the place you want to go for your health. So the pines, according to Ross's point of view, you wouldn't want to cut them down. You'd want to come there and live among their uh, among them for therapeutic uses. So Dr. Ross sort of did the same thing that Dr. Peck was doing. He was trying to convince everybody that the pine forest was the place to go. And eventually, Dr. Ross actually published his own booklet on the subject. Um, oh, here it is. We have um, all of these books that Dr. Ross wrote on various medical topics, and he wrote them when he was head of the um, Long Island Medical Society, and one of them that he wrote is called A Study of the Climate of Long Island, and this um, little book was written with the aim of saying that people should come to Long Island for their health, and one of the sources that he, oh, this is Dr. Ross there, the sources that he cited was um, an author who wrote Evergreen Forests as a Therapeutic Agent in Pulmonary Phthisis, and that was the term for tuberculosis. So the theory was that it could be proven that climate could cure pathological processes and that extreme cold and high altitudes can render air aseptic without the presence of a material antiseptic element, but the degree of one and the extent of the other necessarily to pr produce a sepsis are such... I realize it doesn't... <laughs> okay, that, that doesn't really make sense. Basically, there were two ideas. They believed that the cure for tuberculosis would either be aseptic or antiseptic, and that the type of atmosphere in like the Alps or something like that would be completely aseptic and there'd be no germs or anything like that. And there was also the possibility of antiseptic, which was the environment where germs could potentially grow, but that there was some quality in the air that was killing them. And so they were saying that something about the pine trees that was hard to determine exactly was killing these germs. And that's the reason that people could go to Long Island and other places and be cured of their ailments. In the medical journals at the time, there were actually whole arguments about whether this was just a common, uh, this was just a superstition or whether it was true. And when Dr. Ross started writing about the power of pine trees and that antiseptic element, some of the writers who were very critical and cynical came along to believe that his examples proved that um, the pine trees actually worked. Some of the examples they gave that might have been the reason for um, curing tuberculosis were 
the, the sedative power of the pine trees, the balsamic influence, and health-giving emanations. And then what Dr. Ross mentioned in his little booklet was the fact that the air from the pine trees seemed to have some mysterious mixture with the ocean breeze. And his theory was that that's really what uh, cured people. Um, so people started to see this is a place to go for health. And there were a number of health resorts in Brentwood and people would come for the pine trees. So they became a selling point. And at the same point, it also became more of a resort area with so many of the famous hotels being developed. And so Brentwood and the Pines was now the type of place that um, wouldn't be turning people off. It would be the thing that they were, trying to they were trying to sell. So it had been renamed Brentwood from modern times, but they really wanted to go even further in distancing itself from modern times and have it have a whole other, what would you call that? Branding? Yeah, branding. <laughs> a whole other character and branding. And one of the things that we have at the library is this um, great book selling houses at Brentwood. And some of the, oh, here it is. Some of the selling points include uh, temperature, the water, the air, and the general climate of Brentwood, which included um, being close to the beach. So um, it was really being sold as a health-giving atmosphere. And the Brentwood Realty Company, when that was established, its goal was to sell lots at Brentwood in the Pines. And that was when George Ailing was brought on. And this is um, this was just the Ailing family. We also have... Uh, pictures of George himself, but he was the one who was responsible for our historic cathedral pines in 1904 because the Brentwood Realty Company, as you might imagine, worked, was supported by the Long Island Railroad. And on one of those trips, four cars from the Long Island Railroad were loaded with um, 10,000 seedlings. And so those 10,000 pines were the originators of the plants that Ailing brought. And interestingly, they weren't the same pines, the same species that we found in these pine barrens I had mentioned. These were the white pines, where the original ones are the um, yellow pines. So those tend to be a little bit smaller and can acclimate themselves to the poorer soil. Um, and one interesting thing is the pine trees, those great cathedral pines, many of which, I think that um, in the official inventory, it lists there being 70 of them, but there also used to be um, rows of them on Suffolk Avenue. And those were taken down because of development. And these trees on Washington Avenue, they first started, um, well, all sorts of pine trees, people started first becoming concerned 
for them in the 40s when there were a lot of visitors to Pilgrim and other places and people would take the pine tree branches as souvenirs. So that was the first time that a community organization was put together in order to protect the pine trees. And then, of course, the ones on Suffolk Avenue weren't really saved. But the effort in the 1990s, um, although they weren't made into an official historic landmark, it worked in saving most of them from development. And I think that just being on the inventory of the um, Society for the Protection of Long Island Antiquities is sufficient for protecting those pine trees, but it's still possible to make them in as um official New York State landmark. Although when I spoke to the um person from New York State, I think they found trees as one of the more unusual landmarks. <laughs> but definitely in other places, trees have been part of historic districts. So I thought if that idea ever came back, that would be a, a very That'd be a great part of the Brentwood Historic District, the Cathedral Pines. How would we go about that? Thing? Um, they're going to send me an application. <laughs> I, 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 I got too into it. They, they send me like an application. <laughs> does, that, does that seem What's interesting? The worst they, could do? they could say no. Yeah. Oh, so, so it's not like, you know, we don't need a petition. Or the only thing is that if somebody owns them, you are supposed to ask about making it a. Uh, designated tree <laughs> because I guess they'd want to cut it down potentially. But if something you feel is very historic, you don't necessarily need the person's permission. You would ask them. And then if they say no, you can still get that pine tree protected if it has a historic status. And I think they already are to a degree protected, but I just thought that would be very cool if they were made an official landmark. Um, and then one other very interesting um, tree-related fact. It's not, it's not technically the pines, but regarding the trees that – the pine trees that people um, – one of them was an oak tree. This isn't – I feel like I'm cheating, but I guess it's uh, – I, I can tell whatever story I want. Um, in, the, uh, in the book – of the school district, the school book of District 12, where they have all the minutes, the back page has a little drawing by, I believe it was actually Charles Codman, and it's of right outside of our history room. And there's a little circle for each of the trees that the children planted every Arbor Day for several years. And every year, the children would plant a tree. Once it was an oak tree, and the oak was um, Abraham Lincoln, and then they planted a maple tree, and it was uh, William Jennings Bryant. And so the, <laughs> these are the sort of trees that the kids were naming. And um, we're trying to find out if there's any way that those trees right outside the library could be the same ones, because it seems like they're in the same place from the drawing. But so... As we did with our previous Entenmann's program, we've been recording a little bit of these stories about Brentwood and the Pines, the history of it, and we also wanted to know if anyone had any interesting memories maybe relating to those cathedral pines or even other trees in Brentwood history, 
or um, any questions about the topic. Uh, yes? Well, you know I always have something to say. <laughs> um, are there any other Brentwood High School graduates among us? No? Well, my high school ring, and I won't tell you what year it was, but I'm thinking that probably, I don't know if high school rings are still in vogue or whatever, but back then, um, one of the sides was um, the Brentwood Indian, which is the mascot school, of course, and the other side was a pine tree. Oh. oh. Perfect and I, emblem. If I had thought about it, I would have dug out my high school ring and brought it. So maybe oh. someday I will. But that was yeah, that was a big nice. thing, you know. And and the you know I mean the the um, logo of the library is a pine tree also. The pine tree yeah. Pine trees. Yeah. So it's still an important part of Brentwood uh, Brentwood's legacy. Yeah. We also had. Um, John Turner, who was the founder of the Long Island Pine Barren Society, give a program here. Did anybody see him? Yeah, that was very good. That was, yeah. So um, he talked a little bit about, um, was somewhat connected to Brentwood, but it was more generally Long Island. And he was actually one of the two people who started the Long Island Pine Barrens Society. Um, and saved the Pine Barren environment here. And we've had so much, now we have the opposite of Peck's problem. We've had so much development that the Pine Barrens, as opposed to something that ha people would just wanted to tear up, they're trying to save. And the interesting thing that still further studies found is that as opposed to being almost this, uh, wasteland the pine barrens is a completely unique environment and i i believe he even said um it's very important for the water supply and uh, yeah the aquifer i don't think ross was far off although it's nice that he wanted to name our town a health resort but I'm, i had a grandmother who had tuberculosis and she lived in new jersey and I'm sorry, I don't know exactly where they sent her, but they sent her to what they called a cold farm. And it was whatever hospital or resort. And the idea was they, every ward had open windows. And they did not keep you closed and tight. And even if it was winter, they just put you know more quilts on you. But they wanted you to have fresh air. They knew enough that germs stayed in hot, moist rooms, mm. and they needed to have fresh air. And... Some people recovered and some people didn't. I've seen the hospitals because they tried, and they would have it was almost like a like a balcony and beds both sides, and then the patients were covered head to toe with these white just laid in bed in the cold air, but they were warm because there was the blanket. But I agree also. I think that fresh air is is medicinal. Oh yeah, yeah. one of the places that when the doctors were debating whether pine trees were antiseptic or not, that mm -hmm. I thought was very interesting that I hadn't heard of before was um, there's a pine tree island apparently off of Cuba. Uh -huh. I'd never heard mention of, mention of that before. And when they were de discussing, debating the topic, they would mention how um, 
Oh, in Maine, which has a, they have a lot of pine trees, but people still get tuberculosis there, so your argument must be wrong. And then another doctor was saying, well, all the pine trees in Maine are gone now. It's being developed, You're, and the place you are is in the city. So they had all these little arguments. And then one of the places that really turned some of the skeptics' mind around was also <laughs> the Pine Tree Island, which supposedly never had a case of tuberculosis. <laughs> Heard of that. What was the story with that bird, the hen, whatever, with the, the, you said that there was another picture? The prairie hen? Yeah, the prairie hen. I wrote an article about the prairie hen, and there was a picture of um, a painting, like one of those Audubon, I think it was Audubon's painting, of the prairie hen, and um, there was something about the way they looked in the picture, because that was the example that he used that proved that. They were actually Long Island prairie hens, um, and there were no um, surviving examples of the Long Island prairie hen or really illustrations, but then this little detail in the picture proved that this famous drawing, well, I don't know if it's famous, but the drawing of them, because we don't even know they exist, but this drawing was actually of the Long Island ones, and um, so they're was proof of what they looked like. But then as I was talking, I realized that I forgot what the detail was that proved that they were the Long Island ones. I just remembered there was something about it that showed that they were the Long Island prairie hens, so I have to look and see what I wrote. <laughs> is, is there any any information about why they went extinct? Um, I think they were very easy to catch. Yeah. And there were also famous prairie hens on... Martha's Vineyard, and I, you, you know that there was a humorist, Robert Benchley, who wrote a whole essay about the last of Martha's Vineyard prairie hens, and when those started to go, they, they lasted longer than the Long Island ones, but when they started to um, become extinct, he wrote this little article about the last one, and then um, the keeper would look every morning and see the prairie hen come in for some food and then one day it just wandered off and never came back but um, generally it was the destruction of their habitat which uh, I guess the development of these pine barrens could also and the plains could be responsible for and the Did fact that they're them? very easy Did to catch, catch them to eat? yeah like they would quail or whatever yeah, they're kind of similar in some ways to something like a, a kiwi, or like a bird that didn't really have many predators before human beings started settling its habitat. But I always like that bird because um, it's a unique Long Island animal that actually went extinct that not many people know about. And it's very cool because um, the um, related Western one that lives on the prairies, there are pictures of it in documentaries, and it has a pouch that it inflates, and it has a very un unique noise, and uh, even those are very um, close to being endangered. Peter, Friends also has a strong connection to Massachusetts. And oh, yeah. There's something about, like, as the school district developed, there was... The superintendent or something from Massachusetts. 
and oh. recruited a number of teachers. There's a whole contingent of people that, that came from Massachusetts. And I don't know, I, I, I don't remember the superintendent, but there was like an active recruiting. So ask, ask Ellen if you think of it. And That'll be interesting. That's an interesting Ellen connection. Herself was, Ellen herself was, was raised here in, in New York, and she is, you know, she, kind of in Brentwood also, but she was born in Massachusetts. So a little mm-hmm. trivia there. Interesting connection. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Which, it's very interesting. That just reminded me, I forgot, um, one of the people, which was another sort of paradox, which was, do you remember Isaac Haynes? It was one of the settlers. There was a group of people who came from Massachusetts, and that was Codman and Blacker and those people. But there was also a group from Ohio, and that was... That included Haynes, and he was one of the, their party was discussed in the future as having had um, tuberculosis, and he was a he was a Quaker, and he had tuberculosis, and he was sure that he was going to die. But he traveled to Brentwood, and that was one of the great examples that was supposed to prove the healthful environment. But one of the weird things is that the people, when they came from Ohio, the story about them is that they had their wagon full of pine trees that they brought with them. That's, I don't know. It seems like a strange thing to do. If you're going to a place that was supposed to be full of pine trees, you bring a wagon full of them. It seems like everybody came here because they wanted pine trees, and I guess they just said more is better, so they just kept adding them. <laughs> His favorites from their garden. Yeah, but I know that early, a lot of the early people came from Massachusetts, and one of our databases that we were able to get for the library website is um, the the early historic newspapers, and one of the cool ones that it has is the Boston Investigator, and some of the one of the settler names that's familiar are the Blackers, because the daughter was the first teacher. Oh, another teacher connection. And then Frank Blacker became the postmaster. And and there was Peter Blacker, who was one of the first settlers. And the interesting thing about reading um, The Boston Investigator is that he had also written a series of articles. He regularly published articles in that newspaper, and then eventually... After he left, he kept sending them back, extolling the modern times experiment and encouraging other people to buy land. But because we, that's a very rare newspaper and isn't really in any New York library, we wouldn't have been familiar with those articles. And that adds a different um, twist to him. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to be found in that connection. And even Dr. Peck. The place that he um, decided to advertise was the Boston Cultivator. Probably one of the reasons for that was that the first Long Island Railroad line, one of the first ones, was uh, designed to quickly get people from Long Island to Boston to get to Connecticut and then get to Boston. So besides New York City, that was uh, you know the main place that people were hoping to travel and immigrate. That um, lecture at Suffolk Community on Monday about the history of Brentwood. Oh, yeah. 
and she um, she quoted you. Quoted me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, she, she had a quote that you had written on oh. the slide. And, um, <laughs> no, I had quotes. <laughs> what did it say? You're, you're famous. Wow. Let, let me tell you what they were Interesting. And she mentioned, you know, she mentioned you. She cited you as being, you know, from the front of life. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. That's very cool. We also had the, um, the Entomans program. That was good. Yeah. People, people had a lot to say about Entomans. And uh, so we've been trying to um, record some of our programs and the discussions. And um, I think we had some very good discussions. But I also, when we started this program today, I was thinking, I <laughs> wonder I wonder what people would say about pine trees. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really a... I don't know what I thought. I, I thought like maybe, um, oh, I remember when I was young and there was a really big one. <laughs> but... Well, I, I remember, um, I don't know if anybody else lives in the northern part of town, but mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was little, a lot of the neighbors had big pine trees in their yards. That the development, the developers just left. We didn't. Uh-huh. I think uh, there was there was some kind of proviso of the town that you had to have two tall trees or something. We got poplar trees, which, but um, I, I, there were several houses that had the big tall pine trees that were left. Oh, and they're you know they all died. But Interesting. We, we never call them cathedral pines, and they're yeah. not the same quality of ones in you know in um, town. But they were to me they were scrub pine. Because they were small? Scrub, no, they were tall, but they were, we, we just called them scrub pine. Oh. I don't know if that was correct. Do you feel like they looked very different than those other ones? They weren't as regal. Oh, These are smaller. Majestic, the ones in, in town are very majestic and they're beautiful. And, and I think, you know, for anybody who's lived in Brentwood long enough, any, after any snowstorm, when you go down Washington Avenue, you're just in awe of how beautiful it is. It's like a magical right. It place. holds it. It, it just holds it really it. does. It, it, for a day or two, and it's just like it, it's stunning. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Always very interesting here. Oh, thank you. On behalf of myself, my co-host Peter, and the Brentwood Library. I would like to extend my deepest thanks for the continued support of all of our listeners. That thanks extends to everyone that attended the recording, as well as to everyone listening at home. As always, thank you to the Brentwood Historical Society for their help in making the Brentwood Stories podcast a reality. And finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod from Incomtech for providing the music for this episode. <laughs>